They teach you in seminary never to ask people questions that require them to raise their hand during your sermon. But I'm going to do it, okay? Have any of y'all ever drank Starbucks coffee? Okay. You know, I won't judge you for it, and this isn't political, okay? I just am interested. Have you ever drank Starbucks coffee? You know, people of a certain generation grew up on Folgers and Maxwell House, right? Somewhere 20 years ago, man, things changed. People got into Starbucks. And pretty much everybody here, few exceptions, but pretty much everybody here has been to Starbucks before. Some of you have had that sinking pit in your stomach when you've looked at your bank account statement and seen how much you spend at Starbucks in a given month. And it's pretty wild. Maybe you remember back in the early 2000s how you read news reports about Starbucks popping up on every corner of every major or even smaller city. I mean, everywhere you went, there was a Starbucks on the corner, and it changed people's coffee drinking habits. And this was all by design. Howard Schultz was the founder and CEO of Starbucks, and I've been to the original Starbucks cafe in Pikes Place Market in Seattle. And it's amazing to think that a coffee shop that started there could end up replicated all across the world. This was Howard Schultz's mindset. He said, we're not in the coffee business serving people. We're in the people business serving coffee. The thing that led to Starbucks' incredible rise and in popularity wasn't the coffee, but it was the environment. It was the atmosphere of going into your local cafe, meeting with friends around a table, or seeing the same barista every morning who knew your name and remembered your order. They had a culture of personal connections that were driven by the philosophy, we're in the people business serving coffee. That won y'all over and a bunch of other people over and made Starbucks a household name. Now, I was thinking about that this week because if you were to ask somebody, what kind of business is Jesus in? I wonder what you'd say. You know, reading the Gospels, well, clearly, Jesus is in the preaching business. Everywhere he goes, he preaches. He's in the miracle-working business. Everywhere he goes, he does miracles. He's in the exorcism business, casting out demons. But don't you get the sense that Jesus is in the people business? And that his teaching and his miracles and his exorcisms always happened out of an overflow of his concern for people? I think I heard Riley over here, was, uh, Clinton was reading this story, say, oh, shh, I love this one. And I, we do. This is a great story, isn't it? The miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is one of the greatest stories in all the Gospels. In fact, it's the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All of them have this story. This location in Mark's Gospel is central to Mark's presentation of who Jesus is as the Messiah. And this story is going to come up again and again and again as we work our way from Mark chapter 6 to chapter 16. Uh, even next week, we're going to see Jesus uh, talking to his disciples and Mark inserts. They, they hadn't learned from the lesson of the loaves. And this is a, a key passage, but I don't want you to get caught up in the miracle. Okay, the miracle is amazing. We're going to talk about it. But I really want you to think about the heart of Jesus for the people. He wasn't in the miracle business or the preaching business. He was in the people business, and his preaching and miracles served the people. 
This morning, I want you to see that this Jesus who was in the miracle business, the people business then, is in the people business now. And he stands ready to respond to each of us right at the point of our need. When you come to the shepherd with your needs, you can be sure that you're going to find compassion and provision. So that's what we're going to see this morning. Y'all bear with me on this microphone. I'm about to lose my mind on this microphone. About to rip it off my head and throw it on the ground and stomp it. Get behind me, Satan. We came out here. Did we not, Mike? We came out here and we tested this thing and it sounded great. So I'm going to preach through it. And if I need to, I've got this other mic in my back pocket. Kim just got to be ready. Might have to swap. Okay, so it's been a few weeks since we've been in Mark's gospel. If that's the most animated I get in my sermon, somebody come and rebuke me afterwards, all right? Okay, now it's been a few weeks since we've been in Mark's gospel, and some of y'all are new. And so I just want to kind of set the stage. We've been working through Mark's gospel bit by bit, section by section, since last fall. And um, we've been a couple weeks out of it since Easter and everything like that. But to this point, we've seen Jesus come onto the scene preaching the gospel of the kingdom, saying the time's fulfilled, the kingdom of God's at hand, repent and believe the gospel. And everywhere he went, he had signs of uh, authority that authenticated his message, that proved that he really was the man who had the right to announce God's nearness. Here he was bringing signs of the kingdom in his miracles and in his exorcisms and in his powerful teaching. Along the way, he attracted large crowds of people. And from those crowds, he hand-selected 12 men. And he called by name. And Mark tells us he called them to himself so they would be with him and so that he could give them authority to preach and to cast out demons. Earlier in chapter 6, Mark tells us that he finally got to a point where he was confident in those men's abilities and he sent them out to preach, to heal, and to exercise the demons. And they come back to him like Clinton read, telling him what great success they had had, how people had been healed and the lost had been saved and demons had been cast out. And Jesus was proud of them and said, all right, guys, well, now it's time to recover, to rest and recuperate. And so they withdrew. They got in this boat and they're headed off for a retreat to recharge so that they would be ready for the next stage of ministry. But of course, those crowds of People who followed Jesus everywhere he went, eagerly expecting the next sign of God's authority, saw them going. But anyway, so these crowds who've been following Jesus everywhere he went, see him and his disciples get in the boat and headed on to another place. And so they decide they're going to get ahead of them. And that's what they do. They leave on foot, headed for where they think Jesus is going to be. And when he and his disciples get to this designated place where they're going to rest and recharge, they get out of the boat and see a massive crowd of people. This is the thing to me about this story that's so amazing. That here is Jesus with his disciples ready to rest. And once again, the rest is being interrupted by a great crowd of people. I mean, surely the disruption was a cause of concern for Jesus' disciples. And they've been looking forward to an opportunity to get away, but once again, crowds of people. And look how Jesus reacts. It says in verse 34, When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Listen, the miracle's amazing. 
But if you're going to see anything about this story today, I really want you to catch the heart of Jesus for people. The shepherd isn't distracted or frustrated by this needy crowd. In fact, he meets needy people with compassion. That's who Jesus is. Needy people show up with all their demands, and Jesus is moved with compassion. Mark draws our attention to the crowd. He tells us right here it's a great crowd. Later, he tells us it's 5,000 men. I mean, think about the size of that crowd. Matthew tells us there were women and children present as well. And you start to think about what 5,000 people might look like. Have you, ever, have you ever been in a large concert hall with 5,000 people? Ever been at a high school graduation up in Austin and see the people file in? 5,000 people is a lot of people. The city of Capernaum, where Jesus had spent much of his time, had a population in the first century of about 2,000 people. Think about that. That means an entire city's worth of people empty. E even today, 5,000 men plus women and children, that's essentially the size of Luling, Texas, waiting on Jesus when he got to his predetermined place where he was going for arrest. I mean, the crowd was massive. And also think that every one of those people had arrived to see Jesus, hoping to get their needs met. They weren't just there to spectate. They had an agenda. Maybe they had a kid who was suffering from some kind of debilitating illness or a friend who was possessed by a demon and out of his mind. They had burning biblical and theological questions that they wanted Jesus to answer. Every last one of them was there because they believed that Jesus had the answer to their problem. Think about the crowds of people who always surround Jesus, pressing in, trying to touch him. Needy people vying for his attention and concern. Many scholars believe, especially with the way Mark talks about this crowd in groups of 50 and 100, the way he draws our attention to the fact that it's primarily men, that this group of people were fighting age men who held revolutionary political ideas and hoped to persuade Jesus to lead them as king into battle against the Romans. And in John's account of the gospel, he says in John 6.15 that when Jesus was done teaching, he left quickly because he knew they were going to try to make him king by force. I mean, these people had an agenda and demands. Every last one of them was there because they hoped Jesus would do something for them. How does he manage? How does he satisfy every demand? How does he manage all their expectations? I mean, surely you know what it means to have to deal with some needy people. I think of parents. I'm there. I got two kids. And I think especially of moms who always hear, Mommy, can you come help me? Mommy, mommy, I think of my poor wife. Mommy, mommy, help. Not only that, the wives who have to deal with their husbands, have to help them relocate their wallets and keys and find ketchup in the refrigerator. You know, it's like, it's every, everybody knows what it means to deal with needy people. Teachers, talking to Mr. Bobby about this this morning, teachers who have to balance the demands of students and parents 
and administrators and Department of Education policies. I mean, how do you deal with all those demands and expectations? Think about folks working for demanding bosses. Your boss always got something to say about the way you do your job. Not to mention the cranky customers who in the past couple of years have lost their minds, lost all manners. And I found somebody who wrote a book this week. Work would be great if it weren't for the people. Uh, you know, that's life. Life would, uh, in fact, Kurt Vonnegut has a book um, about artificial intelligence and uh, it's piloted by all these engineers. And one of the engineers said, hey, you know, the world would be an engineering paradise if all these people didn't keep getting caught in the machines. You know, and that's it. I mean, we live in an imperfect world with a whole bunch of broken people. Everywhere you go, there are people with all kinds of demands and expectations. They're just needy. They're all the time asking for more, more, more. And I think if we're honest, if I'm honest, and I were in Jesus' sandals, and I showed up at my vacation spot looking forward to a long weekend, recharging and relaxing, spending time in the Father's presence, recharging my batteries for the next season of ministry. And when I got out on the sand, there's 5,000 people waiting on me. I would have turned right back around, got on that boat, and gone home. And you would have too. The last thing we want to see when we're worn out are more needy people asking something from us. But not Jesus. He takes in the crowd, every last one of them, each with their long list of problems and demands and expectations for how he's going to save their life and change their world. He's not frustrated. Instead, it says he was moved with compassion. That phrase translates a Greek word that's only ever used in the New Testament to describe Jesus means to be moved in one's inner parts, in the guts. It means to feel deep sympathy. That's Jesus. He sees people in their brokenness and their neediness, and he's not frustrated that they've tracked him down and disturbed his peace. He loved them too much to see them as an obstacle to what he really wanted to get done in his life. He saw through their demands he saw through their long laundry list of things they hoped to get from their expectations of him. He saw their real need, that they were sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd. Now, I don't know how much you know about sheep herding, but shepherds are essential for the task. I mean, sheep without shepherds are in an unbelievably dangerous and precarious situation. Shepherds are responsible, of course, for leading their sheep from grazing pasture to grazing pasture and for helping them find water to drink, a vital resource in a desert environment like ancient Israel. Shepherds also protected their flock from the cold, from predatory animals, and from robbers. They carried a three-foot-long stick, often studded with metal spikes that they'd use to literally beat animals away from their sheep or to fight the robbers. They had slings, of course, as well, as King David, the shepherd, used to bring down Goliath. They had to pay up if they lost the sheep. They had to recompense the sheep's owner. 
without a shepherd, sheep were exposed to conditions that put their lives in danger. And when Jesus saw the crowd, he didn't see people disrupting his peace, frustrating his plans, making demands. He saw sheep without a shepherd, people who were, as James Edwards put it, without direction, without purpose, without a leader. They were untended and unkept. Jesus surely knew that God's people had been here before. I mean, think about it for Old Testament examples, I'm sure that you pulled up in your mind. Numbers 27, God brings Moses up onto the top of the mountain and lets him look across the Jordan plain into the promised land and tells him, Moses, you've brought my people this far, but you're not going to step foot across. I mean, God's just told Moses he's going to die. Instead of trying to negotiate, Moses begs for God's people. He says, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. And that's what, just what God did when he said, we'll appoint Joshua, son of Nun, a man full of the Holy Spirit, to lead the people. And Joshua did. He led them into the promised land and vanquished God's foes. Ezekiel had also seen God's people in precarious circumstances several hundred years later, he says in Ezekiel 34. In fact, you don't have to turn there, but if you want to write Ezekiel 34 down, I wish you'd just go home this afternoon and read this passage for yourself. Listen to what the Lord tells Ezekiel to say. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says the Lord God, woe, shepherds of Israel who've been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you haven't strengthened. The diseased you haven't healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost but with force and severity, you've dominated them. They were scattered for a lack of a shepherd. They became food for every beast of the field. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. I mean, God had appointed leaders for his people, and they had abandoned their task. Instead of kindly and lovingly caring for the flock's needs, they took advantage of them, robbed them blind. And so God said he was going to pour out his judgment on the leaders of Israel. And he gave them a word of hope. He said, behold, I myself will search out for my sheep and seek them out. And as a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he's among his scattered sheep, so will I care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I'll bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in a good pasture and their grazing around will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will lead them to rest. 
declares the Lord God. See, I love this about Jesus. Jesus is in the people business. And when he saw that crowd of people, his first response wasn't, oh man, these needy people again, interrupting my rest. He was moved with compassion. He knew there was an active religious establishment that was operating in Jerusalem. There were armies of scribes and legal scholars. There were Pharisees all over. But the people, the regular people, the ordinary people, were broken, leaderless, and lost. But just as God had promised through Ezekiel, Jesus was a shepherd for the sheep. He had arrived to feed them and to lead them to rest. The compassionate shepherd wasn't interrupted or disturbed by the crowd of people. He'd come for them. And so I want you to see the shepherd meets needy people with compassion. And it was the compassion of the shepherd that defined his ministry. Mark tells us back in Mark chapter 1, it was Jesus' compassion that led him to reach out and heal a leper. The same kind of thing that led him to eat with tax collectors and sinners. This is compassion that led him to heal the blind in Matthew 20, 34, and the sick in Matthew 14, 14. It was ultimately his compassion that compelled him to exchange the glory of heaven, live a life, and die on the cross. I mean, Jesus is the compassionate shepherd who meets needy people with more and more compassion. So if you don't hear anything else I have to say this morning, hear this. A shepherd as compassionate as that who'd be willing to put his plans on hold for 5,000 needy people can deal with whatever you've got. Nobody's so broken. Nobody's so lost. Nobody's so wayward that Jesus, the good shepherd, can't bring them back. Perhaps you feel like a bother. You feel like nobody's got time for you. You wish you had a friend. You wish somebody would spend time with you. Maybe all your life you felt that way, that nobody ever cared about you. This story ought to stop you in your tracks. Jesus is just the kind of person who sees you exactly where you are with all your needs, all your brokenness, and greets you with compassion. He sees you and he loves you. So this morning, draw near to him and be assured that the shepherd meets needy people like me and like you with compassion. But number two, now that we've seen Jesus' heart, we can see how he responds to all these needy people. In the second half of verse 34, Mark tells us that Jesus' first response to this leaderless mass people was to teach them many things. Mark 6, 34. He taught them many things. Now, as always, Mark abbreviates his stories. And so he doesn't give us the details of Jesus' teaching. But I think he knows we're smart enough to have gained our bearings about Jesus' teaching. We know the kinds of things he's talking about because Mark's recorded them for us. He's teaching them about the nearness of God's kingdom, the need for forgiveness of sin and a transformed life that lives in obedience to God from the heart. He's talked about the fruit of righteousness and the centrality of Jesus as the Messiah to the whole program, to everything that God wants to do in the world. 
And I think that probably catches you by surprise. That of all the things Jesus could have done for this crowd of people, the first thing he does is teach. They came with their laundry list, their expectations, their desires, their hopes and their dreams. And Jesus sort of just sets that aside for a second. And he gets down to what they really need. He knew that they'd come with all kind of physical problems. You know, if, if in fact these were 5,000 men ready for a fight, they came with political problems. And Jesus just sort of steps around all of that and gets down to the real spiritual need that they had. He knew the first priority was to help them reorient their minds to what God was doing in the world, to get off of their agenda and onto what God was doing, to leave behind all their expectations about what God's kingdom was going to be like and what it was going to look like and how a Messiah was going to ride in on a white horse and kick the Romans out of Jerusalem. None of that was, none of that was part of God's plan. But God was bringing the kingdom near in Jesus. And that if they didn't have their hearts recalibrated to what God was going to do through him, didn't matter what Jesus did, he'd just be satisfying their fleshly carnal desires. He had to get to the heart of it and reorient them spiritually. And I think as a church, this response is really instructive for us. I mean, maybe you're like me, and, and you look at the broken world that you and I live in, and you think about all the problems that are around us, all the things we wish we could do. Man, if we had a million dollars, do you know what kind of impact we could make in Luling, Texas? Oh man, we could transform some lives. But don't we feel guilty sometimes when all we do is share Christ? And you look at poverty and hunger and broken families all around us and you feel like that's what you should focus your attention on. And that if you get the opportunity then to share Christ. But notice the order of Jesus' concern. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he taught them many things. The first goal for Jesus was to teach. It's amazing. Now, we don't need to feel guilty for sharing the gospel with hungry people or poor people. Or for beginning our ministry with prayer. Like, let's get that out of the way so we can get down to the real important stuff. Not a start with the gospel acknowledges that the deepest need anybody ever has is their need for a savior, right? Do you believe that? Beyond financial or relational or emotional solutions, the, the biggest need anybody ever has is spiritual, to get right with God and to allow that to be the source of all the transformation in our lives. Now we need to have the courage of our conviction so that if we can't change lives financially, materially, whatever, we're going to change lives spiritually. We are going to tell people about Jesus. That was Jesus' priority. He began to teach them many things. And yet at the same time, we've got to hold it in tension. Because as soon as he began to teach them many things, time goes by and everybody looks up and it's getting kind of late in the day. The Jews ate their evening meal, supper, dinner, in the late afternoon. And thankfully, Jesus had his 12 assistants around to keep him on track with his schedule and to remind him, hey, look, if you don't stop preaching, they're not, they're not going to beat the Methodists to the restaurant. That's what everybody always says, but, you know, but that's kind of what they were thinking. Hey, look, you set these people straight, now turn them loose 
and let him get something to eat. Look at, look at the conversation in verse 34. This place is desolate, and it's already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. I think this is a totally reasonable suggestion. Anybody who's prepared Thanksgiving meal knows how expensive it can be to feed a large family, much less 5,000 people. I think the disciples are thinking, okay, Jesus, we've done about enough here. We've done all we can do. And in fact, Jesus, you've gone above and beyond. You spent hours with these people. Now let them get about their business. Let them go do what they need to do. Let them go eat. And the disciples could have recognized maybe the problems with their plan. Now here are 5,000 people, uh, twice the population of the closest town, uh, empty villages all around them. I mean, if you really set 5,000 people loose on one of these tiny farming villages, are they really going to have enough food to feed them all? I mean, probably not. But from the disciples' perspective, as soon as the people turn around and walk away, they are no longer our responsibility. We've fulfilled our obligations. Jesus, you've taught them what they need to know. Now let them go. Now I wonder if the disciples are the type of people that James talks about in James chapter 2 when he says, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you don't give them what's necessary for their body, what use is that? It's like, hey, we've, we've filled them up spiritually, now let them go find something to eat. Let them eat their fill someplace else. I mean, it's, it's reasonable. These are preachers, not chefs. But I love how Jesus turns the table on them and says, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. I like the way Clinton read it with emphasis. You give them something to eat. I think that's right. You guys do it. Don't send them away. You guys figure it out. I mean, catch this. The disciples are reasonable. Send them away so they can find something to eat. Jesus' command seems impossible. You do it. If the villages don't have enough food, how could these 12 men possibly have enough food? And that's exactly where they go. They start doing the math, and they think, you know, to feed 5,000 men plus their wives and kids, man, that'd take 200 denarii. A denarius was one day's working wage for a laboring man of the first century. 200 days wages to feed that man, to feed that crowd. That's amazing and impossible. Where are you going to get your hands on that kind of money? And so Jesus says, well, go, what do you guys have on hand? Of course, they go down to the boat. Maybe it's their boat. Um, John tells us that there's a lad who has five loaves and two fishes. Who knows where they get the fish and the, and the bread? But they go down and they find out that there's only five barley loaves and two fish. And so they bring it to Jesus. You know, it's clear. They lack the resources to fulfill Jesus' command. They can't do it. They don't, they don't have it. The, the bread, the barley loaves they had was an inch thick and eight inches around. It was like a pita. They had five little pitas and two smoked or dried fish. No way they're going to be able to feed 5,000 people. And I can totally relate to the frustration they must have felt. To feel like God is asking you to do something impossible. You know, I've discovered that 
It seems like the needy people in my life are perfectly designed to expose all my inadequacies and faults. So they just are perfectly designed that way to show me how insufficient I am. I mean, when people ask something of me, first thing I run into is my calendar. I'm busy. Don't you know I'm busy? And if I can clear out some time, then I come up to my pride. Oh, man, I really need to be doing other things. I got too much else going on. I'm too important to be doing this. And once I work through that and repent, then I get in my selfishness. Like, I don't want to do that. I know I'm not important, but that's not the way I want to spend my time. The people in my life who demand the most from me expose my inadequacies and insufficiencies. You know, I sometimes struggle with things like being patient, giving people my undivided attention. What about you? You got some needy people in your life who expose your flaws? I mean, you don't have unlimited time to spend with people. You got, you've got 24 hours in a day. You don't have endless resources to give them. And sometimes it feels like God's placing demands on you that you just can't meet, and you'd rather push them off on somebody else. You know, hey, go ask your dad. I've answered all this. That's what my wife says to my kids. But Jesus' words remind us that, hey, listen. Honestly, she does. But Jesus' words remind us that he has, he has called us. He's called you. He's purposefully placed you right where you are so that when those needy people start looking for somebody to help, they come to you. One commentator put it like this. He said, everywhere we turn, we find the need of a hungry crowd and we've got little or no food. But Jesus still instructs us to feed them. You don't have what it takes to meet all the people's needs. Just accept it. You don't have enough time to give to all the people in your life. You don't have enough money to solve all the world's problems. You don't have enough patience to deal with it all. That's totally cool. Jesus knows that about you. But what he is asking you to do is to take what you do have and give it to him and let him figure it out. This is all we've got. We've got five loaves and two fishes. I love what happens. Mark doesn't get into the nitty gritty of how miracles work. He doesn't tell us. I think as a kid, like I imagine Jesus prayed a prayer and they all closed their eyes and there were five loaves and two fishes. And when they opened them, there were like thousands of loaves of bread and fish on the ground. But after studying it this week, that's not what Mark tells us. I mean, look at it in verse 41. Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. Catch that. He kept giving them the disciples to set before them. And I think if we reconstruct the scene, what must have happened is Jesus handed over a basket full of food to each of the disciples. And they went and they passed that basket out. When the basket was empty, they came back and he filled it back up. And they went again and handed it out. And when it was empty, they came back. And, and it was like they did not ever see the food multiply. But every time they went to Jesus, there was more food for them to give. That's the way Jesus works. Jesus takes what little we have and he multiplies it for the good of the people around us. I mean, the disciples were woefully under-resourced. 
They didn't have what they needed to feed all these people. But when they surrendered what they had, Jesus blessed it and he multiplied it for the good of the crowd. That's amazing. I want you to think about that. What do you think God can do with the limited resources we have? I just think about it as a church. You know, could he use this church and our limited, finite resources to make a dent in the lostness of our community? To see hundreds of people come to know Jesus in the next five years through our church? Could he use us? I mean, can he use us to alter the trajectory of a child's life? Can he use us to reconcile broken marriages? To shine a light in the darkness, change the world? I mean, if Jesus could feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish, what could he do for the worn-out mom? Who starts her day and says, Jesus, you know, I don't know that I've got enough patience to get me through what I know I'm going to face today. But what little patience I have, multiply it for the good of my kids. If Jesus could multiply five loaves and two fishes and feed a crowd of 5,000 people, what could he do for the dad? Burning the candle at both ends. Worn out at the end of the day. Feels guilty because he doesn't have enough time to spend with his kids. But who says to God on the way home from work, Lord, you know, I got an hour before my kids go to bed. It's not as much time as I wish I had. But what time I do have, multiply for the good of my kids. If he could feed a crowd of people with five loaves and two fishes, what could he say to the person with a schedule jam full of essential, vital things and a budget that stretched to the max? Jesus, I don't have enough time. I don't have enough money to do what I feel like you're calling me to do. But with what I do have, multiply it for the good of the people around me. Think about what he can accomplish with people who are willing to surrender what they do have to do what he's called them to do. He can do more than we can ask or think. He can do the miraculous. People try to explain this miracle away. Some legitimate, highly educated scholars believe that Jesus must have had a cave in the Galilean wilderness that he stashed some bread ahead of time so that when he got out there, he could send his disciples down into the cave and bring it out to feed all the people. They really believe that. Other people believe the miracle was that 5,000 angry, self-centered people got brought out into the wilderness and heard about the love of God and felt compelled to share what they had with others. Listen, you could try to get around the miracle, but it's pretty clear. They all ate, and they were satisfied. And there were 12 baskets full left over. And there were 5,000 men who ate. Jesus didn't have a secret stash of food. He's probably not going to drop a million dollars from the sky for you. But what he will do is take every little bit that you surrender of your time, of your energy, of your attention, of your focus, of your love, and he'll multiply it beyond what you think is possible. 
Mark doesn't explain the technical dynamics of the, of the miracle. It's not his focus. What he wants you to see is how Jesus meets people's needs with miraculous provision. And he wants to do it for you. You know that every desire and longing of the human heart is met and filled in Jesus. Every desire and longing of the human heart is found in him. The Bible says that in him is life. He says that he came to bring abundant life. It says that in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In him is redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the rich of his grace. In him is peace and purpose and provision. Paul even says it like this, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. This morning I wonder, do you know this shepherd who greets people with compassion and provision? Do you know this? Do you know it like the kids know the story, that you've heard about it before and that you can remember the details, or do you know it in your bones? Have you experienced the unexplainable compassion of Jesus for needy, broken people like us? You know what it means to come to him with a laundry list of demands and expectations and not be met with frustrations or somebody looking at their watch like they got somewhere else to go or something better to do? Do you know what it means to have the undivided attention of the God of the universe on you? Today, Jesus is ready to look on you just like he looked on that crowd with compassion and to meet every one of your needs. So I know some of you have already heard us talk about it. I, you know, in a room this size, there are people here who don't know Jesus. I know that, you know that. And some of you, your greatest need is to know Jesus as Savior. To have the burden of guilt taken off of you because you know your sins are forgiven. In fact, the Bible says that we're all like sheep and we go astray. Every one of us turns to his own way. And that turning to our own way, the Bible calls sin, that we rebel against the authority of God and go our own way. Because of our sin, we stand before him condemned under his punishment. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but would have everlasting life. And when Jesus came to earth, he lived the sinless life that you and I should have lived. He stayed perfectly on God's path, never turning from the right or to the left. And at the end of his life, he offered up himself as a sacrifice, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And after he died and was buried, God raised him up from the grave, breaking the power of sin and death forever and offering to everyone who trusts in him forgiveness of sins and eternal life with him. Because of that, we know that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Your greatest need is your need for a savior, but listen up. Jesus looks on needy people like you and he's got all the answers. He's got a heart full of love for you, ready to offer you forgiveness. And so maybe this morning, you know who you are. You know where you are. You need to ask Jesus to forgive you. You say something like this, Jesus, you know, 
I'm a sinner, that I've gone my own way and rebelled against you and my greatest need is forgiveness. This morning, will you forgive me of my sins and help me follow you? A few minutes, Mike and the band are gonna come and play a song and maybe in that moment, you just need to bow your head and pray that prayer to yourself. Maybe you need to come and talk to me. I'll be down here on the front singing, but come and interrupt me and uh, we'll talk about what that means. Maybe you would rather do it after service. And you know that today's the day you need to surrender to him. Find the compassion and mercy you need. But maybe this morning, you know you're forgiven of your sins. You know you're forgiven of your sins? Yeah, me too. But you got some other needs and concerns that are weighing you down. And if Jesus were here this morning and asked you, hey, I got 15 minutes, I want you just to lay it all out there. Tell me what you need. 15 minutes wouldn't be long enough. But this morning, you do need to do that. You need to get gut level honest with Jesus. You need to say, I am broken. I'm worn out. I'm needy. I'm at the end. I don't have anything left. I need you to multiply what little I do have. And you can be sure that he's going to meet you with provision. He sees and knows. Listen to what he says. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Will you pray with me?